and welcome to Employment Law Matters, the UK's best employment law podcast, at least according to you, because we are ranked or were ranked recently number one on the Apple iTunes podcast store for business podcasts in the UK. This is season three, episode three. If you missed me talking with Amanda Stedman last week about the menopause and how employment law does and doesn't make allowances for those going through the menopause, do go back and listen to last week's episode. Today I'm talking about age discrimination in the workplace. We'll learn how something which appears age discriminatory can be justified. Uh, We'll talk about how tribunals approach the complex question of what is and isn't a legitimate aim. And you'll also discover which is my favourite episode from LA Law. Now, this is a little more technical than normal episodes. I usually try to avoid overly heavy analysis of the law, but the nature of discussing justification for age discrimination means it is going to be quite technical. So please do bear with us if you enjoy that sort of thing. If you don't, this may not be the podcast episode you should listen to first if you're new to this podcast. The episode supported by our two sponsors, Watson Ramsbottom Solicitors in Kent and Dr. Joyshree Sarangi from CoverClinic.com. And I'm joined today by Naomi Ling, who is one of my colleagues at Outer Temple Chambers. Naomi has 20 years experience as an advocate. She's a specialist in employment law and pensions law, and she was junior counsel in the leading age discrimination case of McLeod against the Lord Chancellor. I should just mention we had some minor audio quality issues during the recording, uh, so if Naomi is a little bit crackly at points, apologies for that. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Naomi, is age discrimination different from other types of discrimination? Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. Um, it is different. And what people say about age is that it's, it's not binary like other types of protected characteristics. We all start off young and all being well, we end up old. So people benefit from different types of policy at different stages of their lives. Another difference about age that I think is possibly even more pertinent is that as a society, we treat people of different ages differently for good reasons. So if we think about our pensions benefits system, there's obviously a good reason why people only get pensions at a particular stage of life. As a result, direct age discrimination can be justified, which no other type of direct discrimination can be. I, I remember um, watching many, many years ago, I, I think it was LA Law, but it could have been LA McBeal. <laughs> and there was an episode where a female weatherman, is there a female version of the word weatherman? I'm not even <laughs> sure there is. Um, but a female weatherman had been dismissed, she said, on grounds of her age. And she was cross-examined on the basis that when you were young and pretty, uh, you had the benefit of being young and pretty, and that's how you got the job. Uh, and you displaced an older weather person at that age. And now it's your turn. Don't you think it's a bit outrageous to moan about it? And there's a curious logic to that argument, but you just wouldn't really hear that defence being run anymore, would you? No. Well, apart from anything else, um, direct age discrimination can only be justified on certain grounds. Um, It needs to be justified on the basis of of labour market or social policy or vocational training. Um, And in fact, there is a legal principle that you can't rely on a justification that's itself inherently age discriminatory. 
So, for example, a clothing shop that wanted to attract a young demographic uh, couldn't uh, require its sales assistants to be young on that basis. For direct age discrimination justification, it has to be a certain type of justification in order to succeed. You mentioned labour market, social policy or vocational training. Does that come from case law or does it come from somewhere else? So that actually comes from the European Directive, um, which first gave us uh, the right not to be discriminated on the grounds of age. The way in which the courts have interpreted or implemented that was really summarised by Baroness Hale in the case of of Selden against Clarkson, Wright and Jakes in the Supreme Court. And she reviewed all of the case law and, and came up with two broad categories Um, by which it's possible to justify age discrimination. And she summarised those categories as, first of all, being dignity, which would be the situation in which you have a compulsory retirement age because you don't want to be having to assess people as they get older uh, to ensure that they are still performing adequately. The second is a far more uh, wide-ranging categorisation intergenerational fairness. That can mean creating opportunities for younger people, uh, maintaining a balance of different types of experience in the workforce, acknowledging the financial needs of people at different times of their lives, including the availability of pensions when people reach a certain age. That sounds almost like saying that it's okay to dismiss somebody when they hit 65 because they've got a a whacking huge pension uh, available, but we we no longer have the ability to compulsory retire people, do we? That's right. There's no longer a national compulsory retirement age, but employers are still permitted to have their own compulsory retirement ages as long as they can justify that. And that's got the wonderful acronym EJRA. What does that stand for? So that stands for Employer Justified Retirement Age. I actually, I don't think I've done a case since some um, age discrimination came in in 2006, which involved checking the legality or testing the legality of a compulsory retirement age. I think they're quite far and few between. Have you had any near mealing? Well, I haven't defended a case or, or I haven't been involved in a case um, where there's been such a retirement age, but judges are currently obliged to retire at the age of 70. Uh, There are, I think, arguments currently that that age should be changed again or moved upwards again to the age of 75, which it used to be. Uh, And that, I think, is is to do with the fact that people are tending to retire later in general. So one of the things that uh, I think is about age discrimination is that it is quite a constantly moving area. Our assumptions about what age people ought to be to do certain things um, seem to be changing quite often. Just remind me what the legal test is for justification. So the way in which we summarise the test of justification is to ask uh, whether or not it is a, uh, a particular measure is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And that test is derived from European law and it has been incorporated into our Equality Act. 
Okay, so let's break that down. Let's look at legitimate aim, first of all. You've already mentioned dignity and intergenerational fairness from um, uh, Baroness Hale and Selden. What kind of level of evidence is needed to show a legitimate aim and who has to call the evidence? It is up to a respondent to justify a measure. So it's always going to be for the respondent to show that it is relying on a legitimate aim and to show that that legitimate sorry that the measure is a proportionate means of achieving it. And that must be right, mustn't it? Because uh, it is the respondent that identifies the aim and identifies the policy. In terms of the level of evidence needed, that will depend on the type of aim it is. So there will be some aims, although they are likely to be quite few and far between, uh, that are political or moral in nature. And it's likely to be a government that is putting in place aims of that kind. Uh, And where a political or moral aim is relied on, uh, the courts have said, well, in those cases, it's not necessary um, to uh, call evidence to back them up. In other cases, such as in our domestic case of Homer against the chief constable of West Yorkshire Police, uh, it's been said that reasoned and rational judgment will be sufficient. But where you have an economic or social policy, and those policies are likely, I would suggest, to be the most common, you would normally expect there to be evidence to show that there are Um, a particular group that is disadvantaged and that disadvantage needs to be redressed or an employer is struggling to recruit at a certain level or an employer needs to retain skills and evidence would need to be called to support that. Um, Apart from anything else, the European Court of Justice and therefore the UK courts have said on numerous occasions that what they don't like is mere generalisations. You need to be able to back up your aim by a proper reasoned argument together with evidence where necessary. So if there's a company uh, or an employer that's arguing for the following technical reasons, we don't want anybody over the age of making this up, 60, how much evidence does the employer need to prove to show that it's got a very good reason for saying those over 60 can't do the job anymore? I think that in those situations, you would want to have some kind of evidence from an occupational expert. So, for example, firefighters are uh, historically have been expected to um, retire earlier than other groups and still are. I think they, they now go at 60, whereas previously it was 45. And there's quite detailed evidence that fire services have historically relied on to show things like the rate at which your fitness level decline, the rate at which your body mass declines. And that kind of evidence is the sort of evidence that I think you would probably need if you were impl- if you were applying that kind of rule. Where you are talking about benefits such as you know, we're going to provide redundancy benefits at this level for people of this age. So, for example, you you provide less generous redundancy provision to people in their 20s compared with people in their 30s. I would think that 
to support that kind of justification, you would still need evidence. You would still need some kind of evidence to show that people in their 30s tended to have more financial commitments than people in their 20s and perhaps found it harder to move on to a new job because of being more specialised in their field by that stage. But that kind of judgment that you make as an employer, I I would think would need uh, less in the way of scientific evidence uh, and more in the way of um, a broad labour market type evidence. So it really does depend on the sort of measure you're needing to justify, as well as the type of aim that you're needing to justify. With several years sustained rapid growth and experts covering a full range of legal services, Watson Ramsbottom solicitors are becoming a name you need to be aware of. From their roots in Lancashire, they've grown across into Yorkshire and are now taking instructions nationwide. Visit watsonramsbottom.com for more information. Watson Ramsbottom solicitors, whatever your legal issue, they've got your back. Naomi Ling, what's a good rule of thumb when working out whether something can be a legitimate aim? Well, I'm going to answer that first of all in relation to um, a legitimate aim to justify direct discrimination. It's difficult to generalise about what is going to be found to be a legitimate aim in the particular circumstances of the case. One of the things that Baroness Hale said in Selden was that, first of all, you've got to look at whether or not something can be a legitimate aim to fall within the uh, labour market social policy vocational training meaning of the directive. But then you need to see whether it's legitimate in the context of the employer uh, and its uh, business or its uh, enterprise. And looking at the case law, what I would regard as a sort of guiding principle is that you need to really ask yourself, is there a need here that needs to be answered by this measure that I want to put in place? I know there's a couple of cases that deal with this issue. Um, One of them is is McLeod, which I mentioned earlier you were involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about that case and, and what it says on this point? Yes. The case of McLeod against Lord Chancellor was a challenge to transitional provisions that were introduced to protect all of those within 10 years of retirement from changes to public sector pensions that were introduced in 2015 across the whole of the public sector. So all of those who had, who were within 10 years of retirement in 2012 were kept in their old legacy schemes, whereas all of those who were younger were moved into new reformed schemes. Now, the justification for that was said to be to protect those within 10 years of retirement because they had less time to adjust to the pensions changes that were being introduced. The difficulty with that, the courts found, was that the older group or cohort had actually had a whole career's worth of service to build up pension on what was generally assumed to be the more generous basis, whereas younger groups of people didn't. And so the closer you were to retirement, in fact, you were proportionately less affected by the changes. And the judge at first instance said that to protect a group that was already better protected or 
had less need of protection was, without further explanation, bizarre in his words. Uh, And what he meant by that, I think, was that if you had another reason for wanting to protect that group, that was all well and good. But the justification that the government was actually relying on simply wasn't sufficient in the circumstances, given that the protected group was already better off. And and there's another case on the point as well, isn't there? Um, Odar against Baxter Deutschland. Yes, Daniel, I think this actually really nicely illustrates the point I'm making about needing to find a need to be redressed when you have a a policy um, that discriminates directly on age. Uh, And that's the case of Odar against Baxter Deutschland, which is a, a German case in the ECJ. In that case, there was a redundancy compensation scheme. Um, whereby uh, payments were reduced for older workers who, at the time of redundancy, had accrued sufficient pension that they regarded as financially secure. And the ECJ said that that was potentially justifiable. uh, And the reason for that was essentially because the financial security of the pension sort of cancelled out or balanced out the need for such a large redundancy payment. However, there was another group of workers that received a pension and they were disabled workers. They received their pension three years early to reflect financial disadvantage that they faced as disabled workers. And it was found that to pay them a redundancy payment um, that had been reduced was not justified. The reason for that was that the early payment of pension was viewed as redressing a disadvantage that they suffered so as to put them on a level playing field. Uh, Therefore, there wasn't that elimination or reduction of the need that was therefore balanced out by the reduction in compensation payment. And I think that that sort of demonstrates how you need to sort of find this balance between the need of the worker or uh, the reduced need of the worker and uh, treating them some way less favourably on the grounds of their age. So, so that's the situation with direct discrimination, where somebody's treated unfavorably on grounds of age. Is the position the same for indirect discrimination? And, and if not, could you explain what indirect discrimination is on the way to your answer? So indirect discrimination is where you have a provision or a, or a practice of some kind that doesn't expressly discriminate because of the protected characteristics. So you're not saying um, we're going to treat you differently because you are above this age or below that age. It's where you have a a provision that is apparently neutral, but which nevertheless places people with a particular characteristic at a disadvantage. And that is the same in terms of indirect discrimination for every protected characteristic. There's no difference between indirect discrimination on grounds of age and indirect discrimination on any other ground. So I'm racking my brain to try and think of a provision criterion or practice in in age uh, circumstances. And and I suppose off the top of my head, one might be you've got to have dark hair. Older people (laughs) tend to have silver hair. Yes. Another might be you have to have GCSEs as opposed to O-levels. But are are there any you've encountered in practice? Because I thought this is quite rare. Well, an absolute classic, actually, is length of service. So someone who is older is likely to have longer length of service, or certainly in our labour market, that's the case. I mean, it may be that in some sort of future situation, everyone, that, 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 that assumption ceases to be true, but currently it is true. And we also have the case of, of Homer, in which 
um, Mr. Homer said that he was disadvantaged by a requirement to obtain a degree in order to get a promotion. And he said he just didn't have time to get a degree in order to obtain the promotion because of um, being quite close to retirement. So what is the position with justification for indirect discrimination? Is it different? So with indirect discrimination, you don't have to show that an aim is to promote um, social policy or, or anything to do with the labour market. It just needs to be a real need of the business. Is there something that can't be a legitimate aim? You, you started to talk about aims that themselves are discriminatory. Could you expand on that? Yes. So I previously mentioned the case of, of Abercrombie, which was where a, a retailer wanted to have young people working on the shop floor. That was a measure that was found to be inappropriate or illegitimate because it was in itself dis- discriminatory. And the measure in McLeod that I explained earlier, I think, verged on that as well, because really what it was saying was, we're simply going to treat older people better. Another type of aim that can't amount to a legitimate aim would be a pure costs justification. So an aim that said, we are introducing this measure because we want to save money. That in itself cannot be a legitimate aim. And the European Court has reiterated that on many occasions. However, you can justify a measure on the grounds of costs what we refer to as costs plus. And what that really means is that if as an employer, you say, I'm sorry, I need to introduce this on costs grounds because I need to balance the books or I need to make my business viable, that will be a legitimate aim because it is a real need on the part of the business to have an economically viable enterprise. Has the issue of what can be justified changed over time? Yes. Well, I think I mentioned earlier, Daniel, that um, age discrimination is actually quite a dynamic area. And you yourself mentioned that when the age discrimination protections were brought in, we still had a national retirement age of 65. Um, That was challenged as being inconsistent with the directive by... um, Age UK, which brought a judicial review against the government, um, which was known as the heyday litigation. And in that case, the judge said, well, I'm rejecting your challenge. I don't think that this um, national retirement age of 65 is unlawful. But the only reason why I'm not is because I know that the government is actually in the process of reviewing the national retirement age anyway. Um, So quite an interesting basis for finding that a policy was lawful at that time. Uh, And of course, since then, we have had the national retirement age of 65 reduced. More and more employers are removing a compulsory retirement age of 65 or are finding it um, that they are needing to justify it on a more and more stringent basis. And of course, as retirement ages are removed, we need to um, review other policies that interact with them. Other assumptions about what people are doing or the position that people are in at particular ages are starting to change as well. Now, now as time passes, society changes and assumptions change, and you've, you've touched on that. But can you think, Naomi Ling, of 
other examples of assumptions that are changing? Well, we, we spoke earlier about the sorts of assumptions that you might make about people in their 30s, for example, having greater financial outgoings um, or having uh, finding it easier or, or, or less easy to move in and out of other jobs in the labour market. I think one area of assumption that is having to change quite swiftly is about how financially secure people in their 60s and 70s are. Previously, we've assumed that by the time you get to that kind of age, the majority of people will own their own house and have paid off their mortgage. They won't have dependents and they'll have secure pensions. Well, all of those three assumptions are assumptions that simply aren't valid anymore. People are having children later. People's parents are living longer. So at that kind of age, you might well be supporting or caring for older people. Um, We can't assume that people are homeowners anymore. And certainly the type of pensions that people are now um, receiving at that kind of age are no longer what they used to be, given that far fewer people are members of financial uh, final salary schemes. So the sort of assumption that we used to have about not needing to pay older people redundancy payments are possibly no longer legitimate. And in fact, there is, I know, a group litigation challenge underway to central government's redundancy policy, which has historically phased out payments for the over 60s. People are also becoming fitter in their older age. There are greater opportunities for older people to retrain. And that's part of the reason why we can't simply rely on generalisations to justify age discriminatory policies. That's part of the reason why we need evidence to prove that they are appropriate. Some absence or capability issues at work need expert help. Occupational health is a complex area where employers need clear guidance and medics who answer the questions that they've been asked. Dr. Joyshree Sarangi is an accredited specialist doctor who provides occupational health advice solutions for challenging work health problems. She can be contacted via www.coverclinic.com or by email via info at coverclinic.com. I'd like to turn to the specific area of pensions, which is one of your many specialisms, Naomi Ling. Pension schemes are full of age-related rules. Is there a different approach compared with age discrimination normally in employment? Yes. Well, I think as we've already mentioned, that the whole premise of a pension scheme is based on a directly age discriminatory approach. And in order to manage that, national governments as well as employers were permitted to introduce age-related rules as long as they could be justified. And so what the government did was it introduced the Equality Act Age Exception for Pension Schemes Order 2010. And that introduced a series of exceptions to the age uh, legislation that said that they would not be deemed to be age discrimination. So the only way in which that could be challenged thereafter was then by bringing a challenge to the order itself. And so the government has set out this series of exemptions that it's permitted to do by a directive. And, and many of those are absolutely classic, you know, pension scheme type provisions. So, for example, you can set a minimum age of retirement. 
You can use length of service for basis of calculation. That would otherwise be indirectly discriminatory. You can use age-dependent actuarial factors. And I think that there are also a couple of slightly less obvious exemptions that employers can rely on. So, for example, they can set a minimum age for entry. They can say you're only entitled to become a member of the pension scheme at the age of 18 or 21. And it can also do what many, many employers have done, which is to close a pension scheme to those who haven't already joined it. So many of you will be aware that that many, many employers have said, well, we've had this wonderful, generous pension scheme for many years, but we can't afford it now. We're going to permit those who are already members to remain members and to continue accruing benefits, but not to new joiners. And of course, that's another indirectly age discriminatory provision. That's something else that is permitted by the regulations. And one final thing to mention is that the order said that any provision relating to service prior to 2006 would not be discriminatory. And that's an important distinction from other areas of the law. So, for example, we had the case of Innispec and Walker, which said that a survivor's pension would have to be provided to same-sex partners for the whole of service, including service prior to 2006. That's because sexual orientation discrimination can't be justified, whereas direct age discrimination can be justified. That's why service prior to 2006 can be excluded and will not amount to discrimination pursuant to the provisions of the order. Let's move away from pensions and just back to legitimate aim where I've got one more question um, and then there's just one other point I want to touch on. The legitimate aim issue, does the employer have to have had the legitimate aim in mind at the time it took the decisions it took? Or can an employer scrabble around as soon as it receives an ET1 and try and think up a legitimate aim? It is possible to justify a measure on what we call an ex post facto basis. And that means that you don't have to have had it in mind. You don't have to have had the aim in mind at the time you put the measure in place. You don't have to do it until you submit your uh, ET3. But the courts will apply a greater level of scrutiny to that kind of justification. And I think that, I think, really relates to the margin of appreciation that the the tribunals are prepared to afford an employer that is operating within a particularly specialised area, uh, that it doesn't, that the tribunal itself doesn't have the expertise to interrogate, or indeed, the government when it is operating in a particularly political field within which the government is prepared, it is is permitted to apply its political um, judgment. And so I think where the employer can show that it went through relevant thought processes at the time, it made a deliberate choice to prioritise one aim over the impact it would have on a certain set of employees I think in those circumstances, a tribunal is prepared to give the employer a certain degree of leeway, which it's not prepared to do if that thought process hasn't been engaged in at the time. Naomi, last question. We've spent most of this discussion talking about legitimate aims, but that's only one of the two limbs to justification, as as you mentioned earlier. 
the employer also has to show when trying to justify something that's prima facie age discriminatory that the requirement is proportionate. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So in order to show that a, a, a measure is proportionate, an employer will need to uh, satisfy a tribunal that the aim couldn't have been achieved by a less intrusive measure, or putting it slightly differently, uh, that the measure was what we might say was reasonably necessary to achieve the aim. And that use of the qualifying reasonably means that it's not necessary to show that it was absolutely necessary or that there weren't other things that an employer could have done. So it's not that strict a test whether it could have been achieved by a less intrusive measure, but it is nevertheless one that a tribunal will look at quite carefully. The other way in which a tribunal will assess proportionality is it will look at whether the importance of the measure is balanced by the impact on the disadvantaged group. So the more important the measure, uh, the more of an impact the tribunal is prepared to tolerate. Um, So if, for example, it's a very safety-critical thing and there's no other way of dealing with that problem than to require people to retire at a particular age, then that is something that the tribunal would accept. Whereas if it is not that important an aim, the tribunal will not tolerate such a significant impact on a disadvantaged group. Naomi Ling, what's the best way for somebody to get in contact with you if they have uh, any litigation involving age discrimination? Well, they should contact my clerks at uh, Outer Temple and uh, their details can be very easily found by Googling me, Naomi Ling, at outertemple.com. Thanks to Naomi Ling from Outer Temple Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast Store, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I promise I read them all. I'm back next week for another episode of Employment Law Matters. I'm Daniel Barnett. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.